Hi everyone, Shannon Tipton here and welcome to this month's special Learning Rebels Learn Something New Wednesday where all the cool L&D peeps hang out. While you're here, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future chats. Today in our upskilling adventure, we welcome Stella Collins from Stellar Labs as she shares her insights and learning about neuroscience and its impact on L&D. There's so much information out in the world about neuroscience and its application to adult learning. So how do we know what information is good or which information is leading us down a snake oil path? So the question on the table today is, our brain connections are very wobbly and weak and they need far more reinforcing than we imagine. How can we learn lessons from neuro and cognitive science to build better learning connections? So without further ado, let's get to it. And so we have Stella Collins with us and I have been a big fan of Stella for many, many moons. And she is the most lovely person, you know, to speak with. <laughs> and like, I, I think I said this in a, a LinkedIn comment, it's like, I could just sit back and listen to Stella just talk, you know, because it's always wisdom coming from Stella. And as Stella says, her commitment is better learning for a better world. And I can't think of a better way to kick off our day. And Stella, just for the record here, Stella is an acknowledged expert on the practical application of science-based learning to business performance and is author of the sellout book, Neuroscience for Learning and Development. So please find her book, purchase her book. It's lovely read. And she inspires audiences at international conferences and is regularly invited to guests on roundtable discussions such as this one. And she has a clear understanding of the challenges faced by organizations in upskilling and reskilling their people at all levels, especially with digital change being so high on the agenda. And that is so true. When we think about everything that the pandemic has brought us, where we are in the course of history right now, I think that everything that Stella brings to the table is critically important. So thank you, Stella, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. It is lovely. There's a lot of confusion around neuroscience, isn't there, Stella? Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think, you know, it means different things to different people. So for some people, it's very much just the, the physiology of your brain and how your brain actually, you know, connects together and the sort of physical side of it. I actually define it more broadly. For me, neuroscience is any of the sciences that kind of relate to brains, behaviors, and people, really. So for me, it's it's kind of, you know, the neuroscience is the physical of how does your brain connect, and I am very interested in that, but how that actually affects what we do. But also, I'm really interested in cognitive science, and I'm really interested in kind of social science and kind of blending all those things together so that you come up with a, a much more holistic picture, because I think if you just focus on on the the squishy stuff, you don't get the full the full picture. So are there differences there that we need to take into consideration when you think about neuroscience versus cognitive sciences? What are some of the key differences that we need to pay attention to? 
So they're all sciences. And I think that's the key thing. It's about understanding, you know, science in itself is all about, you know, making hypotheses and testing them and experimenting. And, you know, if your hypotheses fail or they succeed, it doesn't really matter because that way you've, you'd advance the knowledge, you advance the learning. So I think the, the thing I'm most interested in is that we use the science of learning, which is many different types of sciences. And as I say, Pure neuroscience is very much about, you know, the blood and guts of it. It's about how the neurons connect. It's about how our nerves connect. It's about how we, you know, the neurotransmitters that float around. It's about the kind of the the electrical waves that float around that are, you know, pulsating throughout our brains. But cognitive science is much more about understanding, you know, well, how do we think? How does memory work? How does learning work? So you can't examine that in the same way physical way. No, not the same physical way. Like you can't look inside somebody's brain and see what's happening, but you make hypotheses from their behaviors. And then social sciences, you know, how do people work in in groups? How do how does group behavior work? And again, you know, for learning, that's all hugely, hugely important. And then, you know, now people are beginning to add in sort of parts of artificial intelligence are coming into that because actually, you know, we're creating neural networks with not with brains anymore, but with, you know, actual kind of computer elements. So it's thinking about all the different aspects of it. But for me, it's, it all comes down to how do people learn better and, and what's the science behind that? And I think that it's always a moving target, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's just so much that we don't know and we don't understand. And through reading uh, John Medina's book, you know, Brain yeah, it's a great Wolf, book. Yes. He's very clear on what we do not understand. And even that what we think we understand, we don't really understand. Absolutely. And I think one of the real things with with sort of thinking about science is most science is conducted in laboratories or in very specific situations asking very specific questions. It's not very often, it's not easy for, for pure science to look at the real world application of things. So you can take a piece of research and some things you can apply quite easily to the real world, but some things you can, you have to pull pieces of research from different places and then make a sort of a general hypothesis about, well, this is probably how things work, but you can, you can rarely use a single piece of neuroscience or a single piece of science to say, this is absolutely how everything will work because the context is so different very often. You know, if you think you're being asked in a brain scan to read, you know, they, they might look at the science of reading. If you're being asked to read when you're in a brain scanner, that's a very different concept to right. if you're being asked to read while you're on the train or, you know, right. you're lying in bed reading, you know, and, and, and what's the change that could be different based on reading in a scanner or reading in the real world? Right, right. Well, here I have a question for the group. And I thought I'm going to do a little flip on the question. Usually what we do is we'll ask, okay, what can we do in order to enhance the learning environment for our humans, you know, in our organization so that, you know, it really does help learning stick. Now I'm going to flip the question on everybody. What can we do to reduce learning? So let's put a different spin on this. Let's think about this from the opposite direction. So we think about, let's do this because we really want to reduce the learning effort. <laughs> what is it that we can do to make sure that learning doesn't happen? Okay, Amanda, thank you. Shaming, yes. Let's put them all yeah. on the spot, shall we? I think that's a good idea. 
What else? Add distractions. Well, plenty of distractions. That's a great one. (laughs) (laughs) Give people the multitask, too much work, changing the message. Oh, I like that. When you flip the messaging around, let's do it through the fire hose. Yeah, let's just feed content at them. That would be a really, really great idea, wouldn't it? Right? Too much content, too much too quickly. What else can we do? No context. Text-heavy PowerPoint. PowerPoint. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put all the words on one PowerPoint. No application. Yep. No time for reflection. reflection. No time for practice. Right? Oh, read the slides. Yes, read the slides. I was uh, watching something earlier this week, kind of an intro to something, and there was a person who was on the screen it was a recording person on the screen and PowerPoint in the background. And they were reading exactly what was on PowerPoint. Like, and I think that's that's a really good example, Shannon, of you know how really not to do learning, read the slides, because you're doing the work, but learning needs to happen in the brain of the other person. And that's so often what happens, you know, if you want to ruin learning, is do the work for people instead of letting them do the thinking, do the practicing, do the testing, do the even do the muddling through, even muddling through is better than than nothing. But the more work that the trainer or the facilitator or the lecturer, whoever they are, the more work they do, the less the learner does and the less learning actually happens. Right. And I love all of this. So this leads me to my question for you, Stella, which you have the basic B-A-S-I-C in capital letters, ways to reduce learning how we fail to connect learning to people. What are your basic? What's the basic? Now you're testing me because that means I have to remember my own mnemonic. (laughs) (laughs) So I might have to test you back on there. But I, I know the first one is boredom. You know, avoid boredom. People don't learn when they're bored. The only thing when they learn when they're bored is how to do something different. So how can we make people feel connected and engaged with learning and engaged with, you know, finding out something new? You know, it's all about raising curiosity and making them motivated. So avoid boredom. So all the basic things are things to avoid. So it's really hard for our brains to process abstract information because when we process abstract information, that's the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which uses a lot of energy. It's tiring to use. We can't use it for very long. And when we can actually produce something that's concrete, that the rest of our brain can start to process. So if you use something that's multisensory, if you describe things that have sounds and feelings and colorful that allows more of our brain to process it. And also we then have a, you know, a physical feel for something. So avoiding the abstract and making things concrete is, is really, really helpful in terms of learning. And these are, you know, these are very basic brain things. When we're stressed, we, do, we, we might learn to run away from something if we're really frightened, but stress really ruins learning because we just get this set of neurotransmitters that suppress learning and just make sure that we can run away or hide or whatever it is we might be doing. So avoiding stress and then avoiding information overload. And somebody's already said, you know, just throw loads and loads of information at people. When we have information overload, our brains just cannot take in that much information. They are they are limited. You know, our brains use energy. They're like any other, you know, a machine in that sense. They're like your legs, your muscles. You can only do so much work and you can train your brain to take in a bit more, but you can't train it to take in everything you other people throw at it. So I think we always 
overestimate how much people can can absorb and take in. And then the final one is the kind of cognitive overload. You know, are you overloading the cognitive ability to be able to pay attention, to be able to memorize, to be able to process the information that's coming in? And that could be all sorts of information. You can feel overwhelmed from overstimulation of stuff, but you want to make sure that it's relevant and that people can focus on what they need to focus on rather than it being being an overwhelm. Mm-hmm. How do we convince stakeholders? And I see here the question from Maureen, and Maureen, this is a really good question here. How can we work with the stakeholders to help them understand the recommendations that we're making? So what are your suggestions? When the stakeholder tells us to do everything that we've listed, right, because that's usually the mandate that comes down is like we've got an eight hour, one day training course. Now I want you to turn it into two hours virtual, right? And <laughs> yeah. so now how, how can we talk to the stakeholders and say, well, no, that's not good for learning. It's not good for people's brains. How do we have that conversation? So I think start with no. I think that's a really good place to start. Give them an example of something they've learned. Ask them, you know, well, how long did it take you to learn X, Y, or Z? And when they say, especially something that they're perhaps an expert at, and when they say, well, it's taken me 10 years to learn this, or, you know, 15 years, or even, you know, a week, and you say, so you're expecting other people to learn what it took you a long time. You're expecting other people to learn all this in a really short space of time. So that's one thing is to throw it back. But I would also say, test it. So actually say, okay, let's try it out. You know, let's test what happens. Let's test their memory, test test them before they go into this training. And we'll test their memory when they come out. That's really good. But let's test their memory again, you know, the next day and maybe a week later. And they'll find that actually they retain very little of that information. And then not only do they need to retain the information, then they need to do something with it. So it's about sort of, thinking about what's, what is the science of learning? Because first of all, you've got to have some, you've got to be motivated. Then you need to have some information. Then you need to do something with that information, make it real, put it in your own context. Then you need, if it's skills, you need to practice and you need to practice and practice and practice and practice until it becomes a habit. So I think having some knowledge of how the learning process works allows you to challenge back and say to the stakeholder, well, you know, that's just not going to work. I can throw information at people, but it won't stick if we don't have the time to reflect and to practice and to, you know, really absorb the information. Mm-hmm. And I think those are all really good points. It's it's a difficult conversation to have, isn't it? When the business doesn't understand learning the way we understand learning. And I've always been of the position that, they don't need to. What they need is help. So they yeah. need help connecting those dots. We don't expect, I don't expect the, the president, the CEO, or the sales director to understand brain science. That, that's not no. the expectation. No, but I think the question is to ask them. So what would you like people to do at the end of this, You know, whether it's a week or a two-hour session, what would you like them to be able to do rather than you know, what would you like them to be able to know? And if they can prove that at the end of those two hours, they can do whatever it is they've been asked to do, then then that's great. And can they still do it, you know, a week later and a month later? Or have they stopped doing it? That's why science is useful because you can, you test things in science. So I would say, let's test it. Let's see if we can get it. 
it is possible. It's something somebody could learn in two hours, Mm -hmm. but it's not very likely. Right. So now let's talk about research. You brought up research and the term I think I used in the event descriptor was neuro fairy dust. I liked yours better where it said neuro hype. There's just so much out there, Stella. So how do we know what information is good or which one is leading us down a snake oil path? How do we know? You'll never know for certain unless you test it. And if it works, it works. But I think there's a set of questions you can ask when somebody comes along and says, you know, I'm going to prove to you that neuroscience works. A, there's no such, you know, you can't just say neuroscience. It's something specific you've got to talk about. But then there's a set of questions. When somebody says there's a piece of research that shows something, there's a set of questions you can ask. And first of all, you say, well, who did the research? And if it was, you know, a prestigious university or even maybe a very big organization like a pharmaceutical company or an organization that's done some internal research, that might be okay. But if it was just you or me saying we're doing research, we probably weren't doing neuroscience-based research at all because we haven't got access to the sorts of equipment you need to do neuroscience. What's on the agenda of the person who's telling you Mm. about the research? What's on the agenda of the person doing the research? There was a huge pile of research done, um, I think it was in the 1960s and 70s, showing that sugar was good and fat was bad. But surprise, surprise, a lot of it was actually funded by sugar companies, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Where was it published? So if you see something, you know, science is generally published in scientific publications. It's peer-reviewed. And then it appears in the press. If something appears, first of all, on the local news channel or even the the national news channel, and it hasn't appeared in some other document, in in a proper peer-reviewed scientific document, that's probably not valid either. So if it's just somebody who's published a blog, where did they get that knowledge from? Where did they get their research from? When was it published? Just because something is brand new doesn't mean it's valid or viable. But that also doesn't mean it's wrong. And if something was published a long time ago, has it been superseded since then? Or is there something newer coming up? And then how was the science done? You know, was it a proper scientific? So a lot of people say they've done research and research is, you know, a very disparate thing. A lot of people say they've done research. Well, what they mean is they've done some interviews. That's not scientific research. It's a kind of research, but it's not scientific research. And it's certainly not neuroscience research. So how was the science done? One of the challenges with neuroscience is that it's very hard to get big cohorts. So often it's very small numbers of people that are being researched. So yes, you can often say, okay, so if we've got a good percentage of people and they're, you know, you, you've kind of selected for them across a range of different diverse kind of subjects, that might be valid. But did you just only choose people who are, you know, 25 years old, probably 25 years old, male, well-educated and white. That's where a lot of research happens. So thinking about how is the research done? And then the last one is, you know, what's the result? Is the person telling you that this is a magic bullet that's going to solve all your problems? In which case, it's probably not valid. You need to kind of ask all those questions and that will begin to start. It'll either make me ring alarm bells or it'll make you think, no, they do seem to know what they're talking about. But it's very unlikely that one single piece of research is going to be what you're looking for. You're looking for a a body of evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's good practice in general when we're talking about research practices. And Amanda Ray, I I like what you're saying here. It says you look for meta-analysis 
systematic reviews and literature reviews. And that's what you're looking for. So I would love to hear some more background about that comment. So what those typically do is that they have parameters by which that they're looking for literature on. And normally, especially if you're looking for something that's more current, you normally don't go any further than seven to 10 years back and 10 is probably pushing it. Yeah. You can look for um, things that have parameters of, they were looking at the math, everything that Stella just spoke about, but they're integrating it all for the consumer to read. It makes doing that work a whole lot easier, especially for those that may not have background in doing any sort of uh, applied or um, actual not applied research. So that's why good good books are valuable. If they're, if they're well-researched books, that's why they're valuable because somebody else has, done, has taken that kind of scientific research. They, even they may not have read all the papers, but they've kind of done that meta-research by pulling together different elements and actually looking at, you know, what's what's the general consensus saying, like John Medina's book, for instance. Right, right, which we know comes from a trusted source versus, because he doesn't have an axe to grind, right? Well, he's got yeah. a book to sell, I suppose. But <laughs> Right, well, other than that, other than that, I suppose. So. Right, which is the your example about the um, sugar industry. I think that that, uh, I think that happens more often than we would consider. Yeah, because even universities are funded. And where does their funding come from? Now, you could end up getting into sort of like conspiracy theory land and not (laughs) believing anything because somebody's always got, you know, a purpose, a reason for doing something. But it's looking at that wider picture and and not trying to. Right, looking at it all. Okay, so now let's think about application. So when we think about, so we've done this research about neuroscience. So now what are how are we now going to apply this? Is it as simple as just taking in mind, uh, like Ruth Clark, her uh, psychological process of learning? So there's that. Is there something else that we should be doing? Something else we should be paying attention to? In terms of learning, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that there's a lot of research in terms of learning, in terms of how our brains learn, and that's really, really important, clearly. You know, it is our brains who are often making the changes. But I think one of the things that we often forget is actually the the bigger picture. How is that connected to our bodies? We're not disconnected from our bodies. So one of the things we often try to do in work is give people a lot of cognitive learning, but not actually help them to embody that learning in any way. So we give them a lot of information, often abstract information. But actually, how can we make that learning more real for people? And one way is to kind of give them physical connection to it. But also things like, you know, we tend to do training sitting down. We allow people to sit in a classroom or sit digitally. But actually, what would happen if you had people moving around and walking and actually, A, stimulating themselves to have more oxygen getting to their brain, more blood getting to their brain, but also that physical connection with the learning, which is a much more human way of of learning than sitting still and listening. That's that's a very un- natural way of learning. So I think it's about thinking about the embodiment of learning more. And then, you know, we're beginning to understand more and more about the, the gut brain that we appear to have. Our, our guts have a huge number of neurons in them, a really large number of neurons in them. And there's more and more evidence happening that, you know, 
what's happening in our guts actually can, you know, we say, let's, let's listen to our guts, but actually there's more and more evidence that what's happening in there can actually impact, particularly on our sort of psychological state. You know, how do we feel? It has a huge impact and how we feel also affects how we learn. That is fascinating. Tell me more. Whoa. Okay. So it's it's not an area I've explored enormously yet, but one of the things I, I am very fascinated by is the gut microbia, the, the kind of the biome, the environment we have in our guts seems to be very uh, important for our psychological well-being. So they've done some really interesting experiments where they've had depressed, usually rats or mice, depressed rats or mice, and cheery rats or mice or perfectly happy rats or mice. And then they've swapped their gut contents and you can actually turn a depressed rat into a happy rat or a happy rat into just by switching the stuff in their guts. Wow. It's a hugely complex and, you know, there are clearly some people who understand it far better than I do, but you know, that affects your psychological well-being, which also affects how ready you are to, to learn. So that's really interesting. And I love this whole conversation especially when you talk about movement. So I see Chris's comment there in the chat about, are we saying that embodying the learning can be as simple as walking around while something is happening and what kind of things could be happening? You can embody learning in a very deliberate way. So you can deliberately anchor physical actions to particular pieces of information. So one of the things I sometimes do is teach people to build a brain and actually get them to physically act it out. So they've not only got the words about brain and how brains work, but they've also got physical memories of it. And it's about making your memories stronger because when we're moving, we've not just got, you know, cognitive kind of memories and senses. We've got that kind of the, the sense of movement that goes with it. So when, you know, people do things like they learn through listening to songs, that can help you. But if you're physically moving, you can actually use those movements to increase the learning because you've got more memory. But particularly if you decide to physically act something out, you could have a process. And instead of telling people the process, you could actually get them to be the process. So you can do it very deliberately. But even if you learn as you walk, as you stand, you're still increasing the flow of blood to your brain. So you're still going to get a benefit from doing that. One of the things I've noticed in in training programs is if you encourage people to stand up, they are much more inclined to ask questions. They tend to ask much more open questions because they can begin to relax. Oh, yes. If you think about training as it typically happened in classrooms, I think actually Zoom is is good in some ways because this training typically happened in classrooms. The trainer stood at the front and everybody else sat. So they weren't connected. There was no connection between them. And these are some of the things that are, you know, they're perhaps a little more esoteric than some of the obvious connections. But why would I listen to somebody who's standing above me and talking at me as opposed to listening to somebody who might be walking alongside me and can see my point of view? Oh, that's interesting. So that's about perception too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And empathy. and Right. On all the things that we say should happen in a learning environment, but now we know that there's real reason. It's not, a lot of us do these things because we know it's intuitively, we know it's the right thing to do. And I think it's good now to have, there's actually a reason behind it. Yeah. And somebody's just asked, you know, how can you do these things when your classes are virtual? 
And yes, there are definite challenges around being virtual because we haven't got the same amount of connectivity. But there are some quite good things. For instance, this chat going on here in the chat window that is meaning everybody, it's more democratizing when you're virtual because everybody can contribute in the chat window. Whereas if you've got a room and, you know, the trainer is dominating or you know, some people are dominating, it's much harder for people to, to interrupt. Yeah, but you can do exercises in the virtual space. And absolutely, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I was, I was doing a session last week where I was literally teaching people to build a brain where they had to put their hand up, that's your brain stem. Then you make a fist, and that's kind of the uh, the midbrain, including the limbic system, where you've got memory and emotion and things. Then you put your other hand over the top, and that's the cortex, where you've got perception and thinking and motor skills. So you know you can actually do physical things, or you can you know you don't have to sit there the whole time. You can say to people, right now, go and you know walk to the end of your house or the end of the street or the end of the corridor, wherever it is, and then come back with a new idea. Right. You don't have to stay sitting the whole time, do you? No. And I love that. I don't know how many the rest of you, while you were doing that demonstration, I was kind of, I was doing it myself, you know, so I think that that's a great lead. And Mary, I see you there in the chat. Can you expand on your question? Absolutely, Mary. So if you want to expand on your question. We don't use cameras in our virtual classes. We, we teach customers. We're not teaching our employees. Okay. We are a software provider. So we're teaching our customers how to use our software. So we don't use cameras because a lot of times they don't have the bandwidth to support that. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that whole looking in the face thing that we had when it was classroom training. We have not done classroom training in over 10 years because they stopped coming. Oh. Right. Because it's too much time out of their workday. It was a week away from work and they don't have time to do that. All right. So we have over the years chunked it down to 90 minutes. So if you come to a virtual class, you're with me for 90 minutes. Okay. And in that 90 minutes, we do our best to share our desktop with you and say, hey, Shannon, here, take the mouse. And Shannon's like, sorry, I'm busy. I can't do that. Because they are also working while they are taking our classes. So I am loving everything that Stella is saying and shaking my head at the same time and trying so hard not to be a negative Nancy or Nellie, or, but trying to figure out how to incorporate this into this very specific situation that I live in so that I can help my team get better at what they do. It sounds like you're doing some really good things already because you're, you've split it into 90-minute sessions, which is good, and you could split it even further if you wanted. But you know, people can't sustain much more than that in terms of earning. I think the challenge, as you say, when people are actually working and attempting to learn at the same time, that becomes a, an organizational challenge, I think. And people need to recognize that you can't multitask. You know, people think they can, but they really can't. So I think it's about setting the context. You may not have the control over this, but there is something you can do to create expectations and say, well, the expectation is when you're in my session that we work together. And the more things you give them to do, the more they will come with an expectation that I have to do things in that in that class. So actually, I can't be doing something else because I actually will be asked to do something and it's embarrassing if I can't do it. Right. So I think you're doing some really good things already. Yeah. And I think that that that's a conversation that could take a whole nother hour, couldn't it, about setting the expectations. We had actually had a coffee chat a couple of weeks ago about communicating change and how do we communicate with our 
with our learners? How do we communicate expectations? You know, how can we get that sort of messaging across? But like Stella said, it really is about setting that expectation, isn't it? Which is, again, a conversation that we could really go deeper into for sure, for sure. But I like what you're saying here, Stella, about helping that learning environment, regardless of whether or not it's virtual or live, right? And getting people out of their heads. It seems like it fights against each other. We want to get people out of their heads in order to get information into their heads. (laughs) Well, yes, actually, but in a way, one of the biggest things I think that is really important that comes from the neuroscience of learning is actually what you want to do is connect with what people already know. So one of the most useful practical things you can do when you're attempting to, you know, help somebody learn something is ask them first, what do you already know? So that you effectively warm up for that part of their brain. You, you, you kind of excite the brain in the parts where there is relevance so that when you start putting or attempting to put new information in, that part of the brain is already excited. It's already warmed up. It's already got connections. Whereas if you don't ask that, People are then spending time thinking, where do I, not consciously, but where do I file this stuff? But that question of what do you already know actually gets them already warmed up. So if you connect the learning to something that they already know, which we know, again, as L&D professionals, we should know to do that. But the reasoning behind that, could it be that if we're waking up that part of the brain of things that we already know and then introducing them to a concept that is connected? Does the brain make that connection, Yeah, that storage connection? Yes, you're using the connections that are already there and you're strengthening the connections that are already there and then you're putting something new in. Whereas if you introduce a completely new concept without anybody thinking about what else, even what else do I know that's similar is useful. But if you introduce a completely new concept, then you've got to create entirely new connections. And that, again, is using more energy, those connections are very wobbly and weak and they need reinforcing far more, which is why it's much easier to learn something that you already know something about than it is to learn. You know, if I were to go in and start learning, I don't know, Hindustani, that would be really difficult for me because I've got no connections to that. Whereas I've moved to Belgium and learning a little bit of Flemish, there's connections because I already know some English and English and Flemish are connected. And I knew a little bit of German so I can make those connections. Right. And I think that that's something that's incredibly important. That is another one of those things that gets overlooked. It's not that we have to connect knowledge that's huge. Even if you have granular, something granular that's sitting in their heads. And if we can just connect it to that, right? Yeah. And even if you can just make it something like, you know, I think that's why metaphors are so helpful. You Mm -hmm. give people something to get hold of, to grasp. Whereas if you just start with a completely new blank sheet, that's much harder for us, unless you can get them really, really curious about it. But even then, you know, it still helps if there's something to build it on. Right. So what are some of the other, I I hate to use the word tips because that just sounds so flippant, but what are some evidence-based practices then perhaps that we can use, that we can pull from, you know, in our designs or in our virtual classes that we can say, yes, from a neuroscience perspective, from a cognitive perspective, this will help the learning stick. First of all, 
build in something around helping people find their motivation. Why do I want to learn this? But don't tell them, ask them, you know, why is this of value to you? What would be of value to you in learning this? So that you start to get their motivation, not a motivation you've you've given them. Ask them what they already know. Any information that you provide, make it as multi-sensory, as concrete, as real as you can, because our brains are, you know, they're not designed to process abstract stuff. They're actually designed to process concrete stuff biologically. So make it concrete and get the learners to do as much of the work as you possibly can. You know, if, if one of them has the answer, get them to share the answer because that reinforces for the person who's giving the answer. But also it's more likely to feel connected if you're getting an answer from a peer who who knows your world, who understands your world. So getting the learners to do the work, because it's their brains who have to change. And I think the key one is, you often hear people say, trainers in the old days, they would say, well, you need to repeat what you've just told people. You know, tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then repeat it. But actually, why not, instead of you repeating, ask them to repeat it? Because that's a recall moment for them. And recall is, is much more important than if you repeat it, if the trainer repeats it, then I might recognize, oh, yes, I've heard that. That's recognition. But recognition is not as strong as recall because when I go away later on, I won't have any cues to remember that thing. I've got to be able to recall it from my own brain, which is why the sensory stuff is so important because it gives us more sensory hooks into the recall. I can think, well, what did I hear? What did I see? What did I feel? And I've got more entry points into that memory. I think you said something that is really important right there is recognition is not as strong as recall. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. So let's dig into that. So those of you in the chat, how are you then enhancing recall in your environments, in your virtual or live environments? So are you making the delineation between recognition and the person actually recalling information which is that awareness of, like you said, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar, which is recognition, right? And versus how are you actually using this information, which then becomes recall, right? Yeah. But that's just so interesting. I'd like to know more from the group. How are you using this? But please continue. Well, I was just going to say that recognition, it's like a really false friend because when you you recognize something it gives you that feeling of security you know it's like when you were doing exams when you were a kid or maybe you were doing them last week I don't know but (laughs) you get your document you get the notes that you wrote when you're in the class or whatever and then you look at it and you think oh yeah I remember that yes that's fine I don't need to revise that anymore because I remember it but actually when you go into the place where you need to use that information you haven't got that information in front of you you can't see you haven't got any cues to recall it anymore and now you're stuck without a cue. So you need to create cues that will help you recall later on. And when you're able to recall it yourself, you strengthen the memory again. Right. And is that the same as creating a mnemonic? That would be one way to help you recall. A mnemonic is a way of making a little short piece of information that has hooks off to multiple longer pieces of information. So Mm -hmm. I use mnemonics quite a lot because I think they're quite helpful. They work for me and I think they work for other people. For basic, for instance, I have to recall the word basic, but then because I've followed that before, then that helps me recall the other things. But I could, you know, when I first started using that basic mnemonic, 
I would read it and think, yes, I know that. But this time I was able to tell you, I could remember it. I could recall all the elements. But when you first start learning something, you can't recall them all unless you keep testing. So I'm really curious to know what people are doing to test. Deborah's talked about job aids, but I'm curious as to whether those are job aids that test or are they job aids that tell? Oh, there's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. That's good for recognition and also good for, you know, if they don't need to remember whatever it is the job aid tells, it doesn't matter. But it'll take a lot longer for that person to remember to actually be able to use that job aid information if you tell them what it is. Because every time they recognize, they go, yeah, yeah, I recognize it. Not very much work has gone into their brain there. But if you had a job aid that made them guess the answer, for instance, and then give the answer, but make them guess first then that would actually speed up the time it would take for them to actually be able to use the answer without having to need the need of the job aid. Well, what about if they create their own job aid? Even better. Okay. But you still need to test yourself. You still need to test and recall it because you can create it once and then you can keep recognizing it. But if you walk away and you haven't got the job aid in front of you, can you still recall it? Right. Asking people to apply the learning to their workspace from Fiona and how they will use it on the job. Because that's a technique that a lot of trainers use also, is we ask them to apply the learning to their workplace or we ask them how are they going to then use it. Is that sufficient? It's a good start because it starts to make that connection. It creates a context, but it's not sufficient for the learning until they actually apply it. So you can ask them to apply it, but will they apply it? The rest of the question was how they used it before or how will they use it on the job? So that's that's getting them to make a cognitive decision to do something. But until they actually do whatever it is, they haven't taken it to the next stage. You're still at a knowledge and a cognitive stage. You're not at an actual skill changing stage. You haven't changed the behavior. Right. So what can we do? So if we're in the classroom environment and we say, how are you going to use this on the job? Thinking about the examples that you've given us so far, how can we at least take part of that journey with them? Because we're not going to their workplace, but how can we take part of that journey to make it more sticky? So actually get them to practice on something real. If they're with you, to practice something real so you can see how they would apply it on the job. They can feel how they'll apply it on the job. They can see where there may be challenges or errors, that gives them more context than just asking them how they'll apply it or asking them to apply it. Actually practice it in the safe environment of whether it's a classroom or a virtual classroom, doesn't really matter. I think this is the thing with learning. You can't do learning in a classroom space, in a virtual space. Learning is a long extended process. And it's only when you're doing things and you've repeated them multiple times that you've, you can say you've learned something. Right. True. Excellent point. And I like what Fiona is kind of bouncing off of that there is we get them to apply it on a job challenge. Yes. And then come yes. back to a follow-up. Absolutely. Module. Yeah, yeah. And then say, and how was it? And what did you find? And, you know, maybe they can video themselves and actually show you how they did it, you know, for real. Or maybe you can get peer support, you know, peer support, you know, surprise, surprise, actually ask a manager to evaluate you on, you know, how well you've changed and how well you're doing. But uh, yeah, Fiona is absolutely right apply it on the job and then check. That's when the learning's... I always say to people, learning doesn't happen in a training course. It always happens when you go back into the workspace. Right. 
Fatina, I see your comment there with a nursing facility. And I also saw your comment earlier about using prayer beads to help you remember stuff. And I thought that that was a really good comment. And I should have mentioned it way back then when I saw it pop up. It's a nice tactile memory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which I think sort of goes into what we're talking about here too, right? So if we can take that tactile and yeah. make it work in our brain. Yeah, it's, an, it's another hook, isn't it? It's another way of, of, you know, people used to tie knots in their hankies to remember things, apparently. Right. But, you know, the tying of the knot and the deliberate planting of the idea there helps. And then when you go back, then you've got the knot, which is the cue, which can then, what? why did I tie that knot? Ah, because same with the beads. Right. And her comment here about working in a nursing facility, developing hybrid programs, and we have to distinguish, oh man, it's one of those words that you always read, but never ever say out loud. Didactic. Didactic. Thank you. (laughs) Content from from clinical application. I'd love to hear more about that. How are you helping them with this? So when I work with my nursing content experts, I have to start with What are the basics that nurses to be need to know as as far as the different body systems, as far as application, and then taking it a step further? Okay, that knowledge is great. At the same time, they have to apply that when they are caring for a client. So taking what they know is the basis and then developing simulations or developing applications with the mannequins at the site so that the students are able to take that content and apply it in a safe environment because we don't want them to kill any clients or any patients. So having them practice the skills and going through the motions of what they would do as an actual nurse. I think what you're saying there, Fatina, is so important and, and, you know, gets forgotten, you know, in a really practical job like nursing, people recognize that, you know, I don't want a nurse to be able to give me an injection until they've actually practiced it on an orange or whatever it is first. In work, we give people a lot in other types of work, sorry, we give people a lot of theory and then just, you know, leadership development. We give them the theory and then we say, off you go, now you can be a leader. And it's exactly the same. You still need to have those practical experiences in a safe environment where you can, you know, you can make a mess and you can make a mistake before you take that out into the the real world. So I think that's a great example. I agree. I wish we could do more of that in some of those more theoretical learnings. And maybe we can. But we can. We can. Why, Why would we just give people theory? We're running a leadership program at the moment. And one of the things we're doing, because it's a leadership program that we have to uh, hand over eventually to the client. So we've said, so all of the theory needs to be in a digital format. It needs to be somehow reproducible again and again and again. But they want live action, you know, classroom. It's going to be digital, but, you know, group sessions where people can ask questions, they can challenge, they can practice. So all of that still has to happen. That social learning, the peer learning, the learning from, you know, a facilitator who can support them in in testing things and giving them real experiences that are not out in the real world. they They can practice their listening skills. Somebody's just talked about, they can practice their listening skills on each other. But all of the theory about listening skills is in the platform. Why would we waste time in an eight, in a synchronous session on giving people theory when they can find that out another way? 
right? And that's that whole flipped concept, flipped classroom concept, right? It, yeah, yeah. I think flip flipped classroom is absolutely right. Let people explore for themselves what mm-hmm. they need to explore and let them come together to share and to practice and to experience. You know, why do we just sit people in a room and talk at them? Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully there's less of that going on now. I right. Think, I think there is. I think people are beginning to get it. It's recognizing that learning is a journey and it's not all about the content. Somebody, yeah, I think it was Patna was talking about, you know, there's the difference between the, the didactic content, the information piece, which is the start of learning everything, the start of skills, but they have to have that practice time and feedback, feedback from many different places. But that understanding of where am I going? Where am I going right? Where do I need to adjust? Right, right. I like that idea. And especially if we think back, because the whole classroom model is relatively recent in terms of history. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that's just not how people gathered information, used information in historical past. You know, so somewhere in the industrial age, we decided that, you know, this was the best way to do things. And maybe it worked for them, but you know, it's, it's not something that really works now. And I really enjoyed the idea, Stella, that you brought up about movement. I think that if we can get them to move and practice while they're moving, then I think you you tick a lot of boxes there. And I think there's there's two things, because I think, you know, practice needs to be highly contextual. The more contextual it is, the better it is. So if it's a skills type thing, you need to practice that in the place you're going to have the skills. But whilst you're, even while you're learning concepts, if you learn a concept and you can actually use movement to introduce the concept so that you've got more, like I say, more memory hooks, you've got, you know, the physical movement, you've got the sounds that people might create while they're doing something. You've got the vision of, you know, if I do the brain thing again, you know, that becomes a visual picture for people that makes it more real. But when they're practicing, you do want to practice in context. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why learning in the flow of work works because, you know, you're actually learning whilst you're working, but you still need the time to step back and reflect and understand what have I just learned? You know, can I improve that? Can I do that differently next time? And I think that's one of the challenges that when we talk about learning in the flow of work, we sometimes think, well, people are just going to pick it up naturally, but actually we're not. We do need time to take back to do that reflection piece. Right. I think that that is something we could really work harder at is determining what is it that people actually need to know versus what do they need to source, right? So what's, mem- what's memory versus yes. what is what is a job? I'm going to use this job aid performance management system. You only use that once a year. So give them yeah. a job aid. You're good. You don't need them to remember that. Flying a plane, especially while I'm on it. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. And that's about what do they do? Uh, Well, that's about what do they think and what do they do? Because I think flying a plane comes with a whole part and many other things, of course, come with a whole mindset piece as well. Mm -hmm. I think the thing with learning is it's incredibly complex. There are lots of different things we're learning. We're learning to information. We're learning mindsets and attitude shifts. We're learning physical skills. We're learning mental agility skills, you know, this learning is such a complex area. And I think we often don't separate out those different things that we need to learn. And they kind of all follow the same process, but some of them are easier to learn than others, which is why habits are so difficult to learn because to unlearn, 
because we've created really strong connections between different a habit is a routine and you've created really strong connections between different routines that your brain actually is processing differently to if you're learning something new. So when you've got a habit, it's mostly unconscious and your brain is processing that in the unconscious part of your brain. Whereas if you're practicing something new and you have to think, how do I do this? That's then the, the conscious part of your brain, which is easier to, easier to change because you're thinking about it than something unconscious that's much harder to change until you bring it to consciousness. Interesting. And habit is all about triggers though, isn't it? You have something that triggers a habit. Habits are often triggered by something. So you can create habits by using triggers. Or break them. Or you can break them using triggers. Yes. Yes. They say you can't actually ever completely get rid of a habit. That neural pathway will always still be there apparently ready to come back. But what you have to do is create new and stronger, richer neural pathways instead. And I see some books coming up here. Let's see. Recommend The Embodied Mind and The Expanded Mind. That sounds sounds good. Yep. I'll have to add those to the resources too. And one of the hardest things, Maureen, one of the hardest things is to listen to learn versus using the time when listening to think. Well, that's an interesting... I think what she means is that when you it's hard to learn to listen, whereas most of us, when we're listening, are actually thinking about the next thing we say. Yes. Yeah, listening to learn, listening to learn about yeah. someone else's thinking and their experience. Right, listening, yeah, listening to learn from somebody else. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting too. And so when you think about how do we help people practice their listening skills? Because I feel that that's something where people rush into, participants rush into a class with the expectation of teach me, teach me now. And it, of course, it doesn't work that way. So now how can we help the participants set themselves up for success? That's a really interesting question, specifically around listening skills. Just in learning in general, you know, so I think everybody's got a different perspective on what it takes to learn rather either right or off base. You know, so you do have those participants, especially those that might be in a higher position where they come in and they assume that they know and it's like, I'm here, just teach me, you know, I'm here, teach me. So now how do we help them process information or help them relearn what they think they already know about the idea of just learning in general? I think it's, it's often about giving people simple illustrations and again, think, thinking about what is it? they need to learn. But sometimes simple illustrations can help. So asking people to, you know, could they unravel, could they tell you how to tie a shoelace? Could they teach you to tie a shoelace? Now, most people can't tell you how to do that very easily because it's something they've, they've turned into a habit. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of how it's become a, a non-conscious ability. Mm. You can bring it back to consciousness, but it's really a non-conscious ability. You don't really think about tying a shoelace or driving a car, you know? Right. Well, that might actually bring up that tying a shoe. And I've used that as an exercise for communication classes. But now that you say it, perhaps if we started out classes with audiences such as this, with a short example like that, we can have one person try to tell another person how to tie their shoe. And then- well, that never works. I've never, I've never had that exercise work. No, you right? can show somebody, but you can't tell them, can you? 
Right, exactly. And so they kind of had that aha moment. So maybe maybe it's something like that where people can then have that epiphany, that self-epiphany of, oh, maybe my my mind is closed to where I'm at, even though I thought it was open. I think with all learning, it always comes back to the first step you have to do is they've got to be motivated to want to do something different, to want to change. And if they're not, they might sit there very passively and, and you know, behave well in the, the classroom, but they need to want to change. And even when you want to change, even when you want to learn something new, you still need, you need to keep that motivation going out for a long time. So for instance, you know, I want to learn Flemish. And I'm motivated to learn Flemish, but it's quite hard to do it every day, regularly, because sometimes it's just not as easy as speaking English for me. Well, mostly it's not as easy as speaking English. So I have to really work hard. I have to find my motivation every day. And I think that's one of the challenges with learning that as you go along, you have to keep finding your motivation. And whilst at the beginning of a session or the beginning of a learning journey, you can be excited by all the, the razzmatazz, but actually when you're back at work and suddenly it seems like, but this isn't, as, this isn't as easy as the thing I used to do right now. It might long-term make my life easier, but right now it doesn't feel as easy. Then how do we find people's motivation to get to keep them going? I think that's really important. So is there something from a brain perspective that we can do to... I guess the word I'm looking for is to nurture that or to fertilize that. Yeah, yeah. Keep finding small rewards. You know, we often talk about, I've got a big goal, you know, but actually what are the small goals and what are the little things you can do to reward yourself every time you do the the new thing, the new behavior? What's a little reward you can find for yourself? And that doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, you give yourself a, a badge. It could just be something that says, hey, I did it congratulations, pat on the back. For me with language learning, for instance, it's, you know, I can actually make a real connection with somebody as opposed to making what doesn't feel, I can make a real connection with somebody when I speak Flemish to them, because I think I've actually done something that I couldn't do before. And now I can, but also I'm kind of rewarding myself because I'm getting that, they're not having to speak English to me. And for me, that's a reward. Mm -hmm. So it's about finding your own rewards, I think, for what you're learning. But regular rewarding is is definitely the way to help you keep that going. I like that. Yeah, those those small nudges, right? Those small nudges that propel you forward. Yeah. And can you get nudges from the people too? You know, if you're learning something, why not tell other people, hey, I'm learning this. Can I have some support here? Right. It's shifting that mindset just in little bits and bobs. It's little adjustments. It's little brain adjustments. Yeah, that that get us to where we we need to be. What we still can't do is we can't just shove a chip into somebody's head and have them change. Learning actually is, as you say, Shannon, it's little brain adjustments that we have to keep working at to make those connections stronger in the end. And it's multiple little brain adjustments that actually over time change who we are, you know, not just our behaviors, but actually change who we are fundamentally very often. But you can only do it one piece at a time because every time you make a brain connection, there's a chemical energy used, there's electrical energy used. If you think of of learning as use of energy, how can we make that use of energy the most effective? And little adjustments are much easier than big ones. Well, I think that that's a great place to end the conversation. You know, I think that's a great piece of advice for us all to lean on. 
on Stella's website, Stellar Labs, you can find all of the resources there too. So she's got a lot of resources for you to access. I was just going to say it's stellarlabs.eu. Stellarlabs.eu, that's correct, yes. So Stella, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fascinating conversation. And we I, kind of went everywhere, didn't we? But <laughs> we did, and that's what this that's what this chat is all about. It's just, you know, getting the topic out there and asking these questions and taking this journey and seeing where this journey goes. And I loved where it went and I got some really good nuggets out of this. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank all of you. Yes, thank you everybody. And I um, Thank you everyone for hanging with us as we wrap up another Learn Something New Wednesday where we strengthened our brains with the topic of neuroscience and adult learning. The big takeaway today, one of the most practical things you can do when you're attempting to help somebody learn something new is to ask them, what do you already know? By doing this, you effectively warm up that part of their brain. You excite the brain in the parts where the information will be relevant. It's like driving a car that's been sitting in the cold overnight. You don't want to jump in, start it, and drive. It needs to be warmed up first, and so does the brain. This was a big aha moment. As L&D people, we use this tactic often, but now we know why it works. As always, the tips are flowing, and in the show notes below, you will find the full transcript so you can keep up with Stella and all of the great thoughts that she shared. I hope you were able to take away at least one good idea to apply to your organization. And if you don't want to miss out on future chats, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Are you interested in how you can join the Coffee Chat Live? Well, go over to the learningrebels.com website, visit the Coffee Chat page, and sign on up. In the meantime, stay curious, be rebellious, and take over the world. Bye for now.